I would like to continue a little uh, looking at the feeling tones because I think they are, uh, we need to kind of explore them maybe a little more and I think they're very important and they are the second of the four foundation of mindfulness. And so first, I'd like to, to see in a way how the Buddha looked at in terms of practicing. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. And so I think here the Buddha is showing us that the practice is not about stopping the feeling, stopping the perception, stopping the thought. But the practice is about being aware of their arising, their staying, their disappearing. So very much then, the mindfulness I think it's very important to see that, that the mindfulness of practice is not about stopping uh, the function of the human being, but it's actually being more aware of the way it works, of the way it rises, the way it stays, the way it goes. And so in a way, becoming aware of what's going on, what is happening in ourselves. And I think with the feeling tones, what is interesting is that they're so immediate. They're very immediate. And at the same time, they are, they are very, they, they're really a construction insofar that they are not given. I mean, there is contact with something, and then the feeling tone arises, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But often what happens is that we think that the pleasantness or the unpleasantness is in the object. So the pleasant, if we hear a sound of a bird, tweet, 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 mm, and it's like the pleasantness is inside the bird. And if um, somebody says some word which is painful, the unpleasantness is in the words itself. When actually a lot of the time, I mean, it doesn't mean that something are not unpleasant or pleasant per se, but a lot of the time it's constructed. It's kind of actually, it has been developed over time. And that's what is very interesting to see that often with the feeling tones. I mean, some feeling tones don't change much with certain object, certain experience, but with some other, you can have the same object, the same experience, and you have such a different feeling tone. So I think that's why it's important to become aware of the feeling tone and also to become aware how they kind of constructed. They are different feeling tone and they're constructed in a different way and how also they are so conditioned by the way we feel, by histories, and things like that. And also what is interesting with feeling tone <coughs> is that sometimes you can start with a pleasant one in connection to an object. 
And then it changes. Let's say you're eating ice cream. You know, you eat ice cream, it's very hot, so first it's very cool. You continue to eat ice cream, and actually you might get very cold, or you might get too sick. And then the feeling really changes. You know, with the same thing, nearly at the same time. And that's what I think is interesting also to, to observe. How sometimes the mindfulness, like you have sometimes a, a certain feeling tone, and then you bring mindfulness to the experience, and then actually the feeling tone changes. So it's kind of looking at that. That's why I think it's kind of quite important. I remember many years ago when I used to live in England, in a community, and there was always this spring moment when my English friends would say, wow, rhubarb pie <laughs> with glee in their eyes. And I would sit there thinking, God, what's the matter with these people? <laughs> you know, because I really did not like rhubarb. I thought it was so sour, it was really awful. But I had, in a way, I imputed the unpleasant feeling in the rhubarb itself. So if they like rhubarb, then the unpleasant feeling tone connected to them. And I think this is a problem that we do sometimes, is that we impute the feeling tone in the thing itself, and then anybody who associates with the thing, then the feeling tone is transmitted to them too. And then it kind of extends. I think we have to be careful there. But also the way things can change. Uh, when I lived in Korea, the first time I ate, again, there was the same thing. The Korean would be really looking forward to sticky rice pudding. Kind of like, it's hard to describe. <laughs> but the first time I ever ate that, I really could not understand how could anybody eat this stuff. It was like plastic, you chew, 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 and nothing happened. <laughs> no taste, nothing happened. But what is interesting is that over the year, I learned to eat it, and actually it became pleasant. So much so that now when I am in a kind of a, somewhere in the world where I have access, to this kind of sticking rice pudding. I buy it with, again, the glee of the Koreans. And recently I did it. I bought the, the rice cake, and then I said to my friend, like, wow, this is great, rice cake, try it. And I had such positive attitude that, you know, she said, well, you know, pleasant feeling. She has a pleasant feeling in connection to this, so I should also have a pleasant feeling in connection to eating this. So she put a piece in her mouth and her face fell. <laughs> like it was, there was kind of a dissonance between my enthusiasm and the taste she experienced. So the feeling tone, the transmission did not happen. <laughs> or thinking of a friend of mine, a Korean friend, who, uh, when I arrived in Korea, at that time in the 70s, they had no cheese, no Western cheese there. And they really thought it really stank, you know, 
Western cheese. This was like the weirdest thing you could ever eat. But I had a friend who was quite courageous, and he decided to tame Western cheese. He would learn to eat it. And so every week, he would eat a little piece. And then he would eat a little more once a week. And it worked. <laughs> he kind of got used to it. And then again, the feeling don't change in connection to that. And also in terms of how we can have such disparate feeling to, to music. You know, you, Stephen loves to listen very loudly to atonal modern music. And he gets great, pleasant feeling about it. And I'm sitting there kind of grinding my teeth, thinking, ooh, when is this going to stop? You know? Or if you look at a painting, if you look at a painting and, and you know, somebody thinks it's kind of fantastic, and you're in front of it and you wonder, you know, what is this about, you know? And how can you have a pleasant feeling in connection to that? That's very interesting. So in a way, to notice, to, to see that trying to be interested in the feeling tone is in a way seeing also the whole conditioning that can happen with it. And to also notice, I think it's interesting, this immediacy. When you're in contact with something and nearly immediately, it's like the feeling is given. So often we have this feeling, it's instinctive. And then because it's instinctive, we think it's, it's normal. And then at the same time, as I said before, if we are longer with the thing, the instinct change. And also if we think about it in a certain way, the feeling tone also can change. And so at that level to be mindful of it, but then it becomes even more interesting to look at the changing nature of it, and at the conditional nature of it. And then I wanted to read another quote. And this is a little long. And this is about, the, again, the feeling tone. And why, in a way, it's not, it's not only important to be aware of the feeling tone, the changing nature and the conditioned nature, but also to see what it leads to. So, dependent on I, on the I, and visible forms, I consciousness arises. The, the coincidence of the three is contact. With contact as conditions, there arises what is felt as pleasant or as painful, or as neither painful nor pleasant. Let's call it neutral. So basically the Buddha says, you have the eye, the organ, then you see something, then you have the eye consciousness, and when the three comes together, then you have contact. But you don't only have contact, at the same time, with contact as condition, the feeling arises, pleasant, painful, or neutral. Then he goes on to say, if on experiencing the contact of pleasant feeling, one does not relish it 
And if there is no underlying tendency in one to lust for it, any longer underlies it. If on experiencing the contact of painful feeling, one does not sorrow or lament or beast one breast, weep or become distraught, and if no underlying tendency in one to resistance to it any longer underlies it, if on experiencing the contact of neutral feeling, one understands it as it actually is, then indeed that one shall make an end of suffering by abandoning the underlying tendency to grasp at pleasant feeling, by dissolving the underlying tendency to resist painful feeling, and by dissolving the underlying tendency to ignore neutral feeling. So what he is trying to say is that when there is pleasant feeling, we have a certain reaction. When there is painful feeling, another, and when we have a neutral feeling, another. And that's what is kind of, in a way, saying a lot of our suffering comes from our reaction to it. So the problem is not in the feeling itself, but the problem, the difficulty is how we relate to that feeling and what that relationship to the feeling will lead us to do. Because for me, in the Eightfold Path, one of the paths is appropriate action. And my feeling is that a lot of action actually come because of our reaction to feeling thoughts. And then, you know, and so, and so that's why it's so important to be aware of feelings, of feeling tone, in order to then be able to cultivate appropriate action. So, what happens? The first thing which I think is important to see in that quote is contact. Because I think contact is where, in a way, you have a moment of freedom. Because, in a way, you have a moment of choice. Again, the feeling arises, again, you have a moment of freedom, you have a moment of choice. And I think that the meditation will cultivate, give us more the power to make the choice. Instead of going on automatic pilot, reacting to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, on automatic pilot, then we can have what I call creative engagement in that moment, not being taken over to that. So that's why, in a way, mindfulness, being aware of the moment of contact, we hear a word, we smell something, we have a thought. That, I think, is also important to see. That actually, one moment, the thought is not there. Next moment, the thought is there. So again, that moment of contact. And the thought can be a pleasant thought, pleasant feeling arriving, or a painful thought. And I think it's very important to see that contact. Or we might have a sensation, contact there. We might have, and that is interesting, feeling sensation, what I would call emotional sensation in the body. So here I'm not talking of the basis, the feeling tone, I'm talking more of the emotional sensation. So you kind of, you know, just being aware, and suddenly you feel something happen, contact, and suddenly 
you have an emotional sensation. Either you are upset, or you might be surprised, anxious, envious, happy, whatever it is. Generally, there is a contact. We feel differently inside ourselves. Where we, I would say we generally feel emotional sensation. And what is interesting in terms of the mindfulness with that is that a lot of the time we have an f- emotional sensation and then we go into the meaning of it. And then that generally gets stuck to a storyline. And I think the mindfulness can help us to be just with the emotional sensation and not even naming it, not even going into the meaning of it, but just how does it feel inside my body, that emotional sensation. And if you go, a lot of the time it's rather inchoate, no, I mean, very quickly you might say sadness, anger, this, that, or another. But actually, if you have the time, of course, if you are in a dangerous situation, you jump. But we're talking about you know, having the time, and it's not dangerous, so we can look at it. It's interesting to go and notice how does it feel inside without us naming it, commenting, etc. But how does it feel? And actually, it's just this funny feeling which moves, which change, which is there, which is not there, and which then the thought often will amplify if we start to go into the naming, the story, etc. But what is interesting is that in during a meditation retreat, for example, is to just be with that funny feeling, emotional feeling, and just be with it. It could be pleasant, it could be unpleasant. Again, feeling tone, contact with that. And to notice nearly more its texture. Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it agitated? Just to notice. And actually we start to have a very different relationship. And often the emotion won't take us so quickly and so disturbingly. And then it's more kind of being able to be with that with the way it appears. And then I think we have more possibility to creatively engage with what, in a way, made it happen. So so that's why I think contact is important to be aware of that moment of contact. Because a lot of the time, as we were talking in the discussion, sometimes it's very late in the day. You become aware, oops, there was a contact you know, an hour ago or a day ago, you realize, ah, I feel like this because of that. Then with the different feeling tone, you have the contact, you have the feeling tone. Then generally, if it's pleasant, you want more. You want it to continue. You want it to repeat itself. I mean, the best way to know it is you have a wonderful weekend with friends. They leave the door and you say, let's do this again. Basically saying, let's reproduce exactly the same pleasant feeling. I am not saying you cannot meet your friend again and it cannot be pleasant again, but I doubt that it be, can be pleasant in exactly the same way. 
But often we try to do that. We try to replicate the same circumstance to have the same feeling. And often we're very disappointed because we don't have it again in the same way. We can have another one, but we cannot have that one. That's why we have to be careful in a way with this repetition, trying to repeat something in that way. And I think, unfortunately, this also happened with retreats. You know, you had a wonderful retreat. And then you come, and it's not the same. Not the same. And generally, why is it not the same? Generally, because the conditions are different. You are different. Your conditions are different. And who knows, other conditions might be different. I mean, this is, we teach in July regularly. We have done so for the last more than 20 years. And I would say for the last 10 years, this is the first time we truly have an English weather. <laughs> you know, generally it's, wow, it's sunny, it's wonderful, it's warm. It's interesting, you know, and for the last few years it's been such a nice weather. And now it's, oh, can we going back in time? <laughs> but you can, it changes. Things are not the same. The people change, the weather change. So in a way, seeing that. And so in a way, too, also the other things that we do with pleasant feeling tone is that we also start to grasp at a pleasant feeling tone in the future. And that's a little problematic. I am not saying it's a problem to kind of, you know, think about your holiday, and to have a nice anticipation about your holiday. But I would say, the more you anticipate pleasantly about your holiday, and the less your holiday will be amazing. This happened with my uh, sister and niece. I took them to England once. And for a month before we came, they were so happy about it. They're really over the moon. We're going to England. This is going to be fantastic. They're really over the moon. And once they got there, it was really kind of not as fun. (laughs) (laughs) And this is often why actually we become nearly, I would say, addicted to the hope that something is going to be pleasant, not because a thing will be really, really pleasant, but because imagining it is so pleasant. And then often when we get there, compared to that, it is not as pleasant. And I think we have to be careful there. In a way, that comparison with an imagined, nearly idealized state. Because I think this, we do also this with meditation. We sit in meditation, and often you compare yourself Next to you, often you have this abstract, idealized meditator with no thought, totally peaceful, no pain, and floating a little above the cushion. <laughs> and inside, a dime a dozen. And then you compare yourself to that. And compared to that one, you're really not up to it. 
But the problem, that one does not exist. The only one which exists is a person here and now who is really doing the best they can with the condition they have. So in a way, noticing that, if we kind of, in a way, grasping in advance at a pleasant feeling tone. And in a way, to be aware of pleasant feeling tone, I think is really important. Because it makes us see that not everything is suffering. Because I think that can be a problem with Buddhists, you know. Life is dukkha. Everything is dukkha. Then why should I do anything if everything is dukkha? But as Stephen was mentioned, dukkha is not, doesn't just refer to suffering. It's not saying everything is suffering. So in a way, is to see, and I think that's why the Buddha is not saying, you know, don't pay attention to feeling. He's saying pay attention to feeling tones as they arise, as they're there, as they pass away. And the problem is not with the pleasant feeling tone, but what you do with it. And I think in terms of pleasant feeling tone, if you feel pleasant feeling tone, to know it. And I think the mindfulness, again, can help us there to really, oh, I am feeling well now. Right now, I am feeling peaceful. I'm feeling calm. I'm feeling joyful. I'm feeling loving, whatever it is. That we, in a way, really inhabit that pleasant feeling. So that, in a way, we appreciate it even more because we know it is not going to last. So that while it's there, we just, in a way, enjoy it. We appreciate it. Then you have unpleasant. And as the Buddha mentioned, unpleasant, this is immediate. Automatic, I don't want it. I really don't want it. So I push it away, I reject it, anything but this unpleasant. But the problem with that reaction is that by pushing it away, we actually amplify it. This is in a way the problem with rejection, with that immediate automatic thing we have. So instead of creatively engaging with it, looking at the condition, the manifestation, thing of that nature, straight away we kind of, it's like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to, to, to be with this. It's kind of like immediate. We don't want it. But you see, when we do this, we are what I would call grasping in reverse. So let me kind of show you a little how I think this amplification works. So that's my little party trick. Some of you have seen it, but it's good to have a reminder. So let's say this is gold and diamond, and all the greatest truths in the universe. But what is important is I have got it. It's me, it's mine. And so because it's precious, I hold on to it. And if I hold on to it, two things will happen. First thing, I will get a cramp in the arm. Second thing, which is more problematic, I will not be able to use my hand because I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. This is what is more problematic. So in a way, I would say the, the practice is for us to release. 
So over time to release our grip, so then there can be freedom, there can be movement, there can be choice. And then the process of grasping, generally there is identification. I, me, mine. So if it's something negative, this is happening to me. This negative thing is happening to me. They do it on purpose to annoy me. Even if it's something really far away, we'll connect it to ourselves. This is against me. Then because we grasp, identify, we solidify around what we grasp at, then we limit ourselves to it. And then we amplify it. This is what is the biggest problem. And so we can amplify positively. This is amazing. Or we can amplify negatively. This is awful. This is the most awful thing in the universe. Like, for example, when you say, I cannot stand it. You actually amplify it. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But generally... We can stand quite a lot of things. So it's to see that effect. By grasping negatively at the unpleasant, we amplify it. We do two things generally. We proliferate negatively and we exaggerate negatively. So generally we do, it's always like this. It will never change. And so you kind of like, what can you do with always? What can you do with never? I mean, it's so big. Then generally it makes one feel hopeless. And so to see, that's what the Buddha is saying, if you automatically push away, then generally you have this amplification happening, which then will make it even more difficult, even more painful. And that's why in a way, The solution is this creative engagement. How can we creatively engage with what is difficult, with what is painful, with what in a way gives rise to this unpleasant feeling? And also I think it's very important that often with this, because we have such immediate reaction, often we put the unpleasant to the same level. Very quickly, Unpleasant thing is number 10, very fast. Instead, and I think the mindfulness can help us to see that you have light unpleasant, you have habitual unpleasant, and then you have intense unpleasant. And light unpleasant, if you generally don't do much to it, you don't amplify it. It comes, stay a little bit, and it goes because it's light. The habitual unpleasant, what is interesting is to look like, but what is going on? What is going on here? I mean, this seems to be, it's not always like this, but I seem to repeat this negative pattern. I seem to repeat this negative arising of this unpleasant feeling. What is going on? What do I do? I have a little uh, tendency much improved, to be a little fiery, impatient, irritable. And I would find myself being irritated 
And then I would look for somebody. Because, I mean, pleasant feeling arising, it must be somebody's fault. It's not mine. So I thought, often Stephen was the closest to hand. (laughs) Poor thing. And then he would say, but I've not done anything. And I would say, that's true, he's not done anything. But still, I have this feeling. There is this unpleasant feeling arising. And then I, I look, but when does it happen? I don't feel it all the time. And then I realized it was when I was tired. And then I became then more aware of the source, which was to the tiredness, to just be aware of when I was tired and when I was not tired. And then when I saw the tiredness arise, then I would rest. And then I was much less irritable. I had much less arising of the negative feeling. So in a way, it's kind of looking with the habitual is looking. You know, what are the conditions that I can see? Because sometimes it's not obvious, but sometimes we can find out. And then there is an intense level when something is really intensely unpleasant. And then I think, again, here I think it's so essential creative engagement. You know, do I need to get out? You know, if you have an intensely unpleasant situation. I used to work with uh, battered women, a charity in England, and they have to get out. They cannot say, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant, it will come and pass away. You know, no, they had to get out. There is no doubt about that. So in a way, it's kind of like, is it something I have to look at it differently, or is it something I have to get out? I had a friend I used to visit once a year, and she was so unhappy, so unhappy about her work. So then she started to do another training, totally different than what she did. And finally she passed her exam, and now she could do this other work. So I expected the next year she would be doing this new work that she looked so happy to be doing. So I said, oh, how is it, you know, the new work? Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm doing the old work. I said, what happened? She said, well, suddenly I thought, what about looking at the condition why I'm so unhappy at work? And then she really went with a different way, like with mindfulness, with creative engagement. And then she realized it was a way that she was relating with the people. And as soon as she changed that, it was fine. It was like something that had been so painful so many years suddenly it could be so different. So sometimes we have to get out. Sometimes we have to creatively engage, see what are the conditions. Then you have neutral. And I'm very interested in neutral. And Stephen thinks it does not exist, but this is we can have our difference sometimes. So neutral, and what is interesting is the Buddha says... Neutral, the problem is that you don't understand it. The problem is that you don't, you ignore it because it's neutral. And to me, a a meditation retreat is an excellent opportunity to become mindful of neutral because actually most of the time, nothing happens. And I know you're sitting waiting for something special to happen and tomorrow I'll talk about this. But most of the time, nothing happens. And so in a way, it's an opportunity to kind of see a little. 
How is it to be with neither pleasant nor unpleasant? How can we understand it? How can we know it and not ignore it? And there is this wonderful quote in uh, the Sutta, which was said by a nun, but it was so good, it was kept. And she says, as long as a pleasant feeling continues, it is pleasant. When it stops, it becomes unpleasant. As long as an unpleasant feeling continues, it's unpleasant. But when it stops, it becomes pleasant. How does it feel when you don't have pain in the back, pain in the neck, in the head? Suddenly you feel, you feel your head. Such pleasant experience. And then you forget about it. And the last one, if you do not understand neutral, it becomes unpleasant. If you understand neutral, it becomes pleasant. That's what Stephen figures. There is no neutral because it turns into one or the other. But personally, I think it's a bit there. But this is interesting because actually in our society nowadays, Neutral has a really bad press. You know, since the Romantics, actually it's all because of the Romantics. Before of the Romantics, it was okay. <laughs> then the Romantics, they decided, you know, neutral is bad. Yeah, yeah, I read a whole book about it. And it's uh, very interesting. Like it was, nothing was happening. Something had to happen. Even if it was painful, it was better than nothing happening. And then that's where boring got a really bad press after that. Not all the romantic poets, some of them. But, and more from Germany than from England. And so, but nowadays, you, you see, I mean, you know, if, if nothing happens, you're at home, nothing happens. What do you, how do you feel? Generally, you start to feel boring, boredom, lonely, sad. I am boring. Everything is boring. The whole thing is boring. Is there a meaning in the universe? <laughs> it's interesting. You know, this feeling, which is actually not much, can actually lead you to a really, really painful place. I mean, my niece, when she was younger, she used to have attacks of boredom. She used to kind of bang her feet and cry and shout, I am bored, like if it was the worst thing in the universe, you know. <laughs> it was like, you know. And, uh, but if you understand neutral, nothing is happening. I mean, it's very peaceful. Nothing bad is happening. <laughs> I mean, nothing good, but nothing bad is happening. <laughs> and it's very restful. Personally, I really enjoy it. Nothing happened? Hmm. I can just meditate. I can just be aware. I am alive in this moment. doesn't mean that I will not do anything forever, but I think for a few minutes, a few hours, it's quite nice if nothing happens. And just to be with that, to rest in that. And the other problem I see with this difficulty of 
seeing, understanding neutral, is that often it makes our baseline, what I would call a little misguided, that often we have this image of our emotional baseline or well-being baseline as pleasant number five. Then if it's pleasant number five, it's okay. That anything up, it's good. But anything down from it, not so good. But personally, I think the baseline is neutral. Then you can go up 10, go down 10. So you need to be more aware, what is our baseline? Where do we place it? What is our expectation in terms of generalized feeling tool? Because, of course, some people have a more generalized pleasant feeling tool. And then some other have a more sometimes generalized unpleasant feeling tool. And, of course, they change. But then we might amplify one or the other. And I think that's why it is very important to try to be aware of the different feeling tones, to see how they change, as they go up, down, how we, in a way, shift, how we shift our focus, can make them go up and down too. And so, in a way, with this neutral feeling tone, trying just to be aware of it, trying to see how it changes within itself. And in a way, this neutral feeling tone from a Buddhist point of view is kind of like nearly the baseline to start to understand equanimity, to start to experience equanimity. It's kind of like the the beginning feeling of that. And I'll talk more about that on Saturday. And that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I always have a bit of a problem between feeling neutral and feeling indifferent about something. It's not the same, but I can't I, I can differentiate it clearly. No, no, that's a good point. No, no, this is a very good point. And this is why generally I don't speak in terms of non-grasping as detachment or non-attachment. And I prefer to talk about as creative engagement. So then we don't go into this indifference. But I think the difference one could nearly call between what I would call a neutral, restful feeling and a neutral feeling which is indifferent is that the neutral, restful feeling, I would say there is mindfulness of life within it. Like you see the life in the person, even if you feel neutral to the person, for example. But if you feel indifferent... Generally, I think there is this feeling a little of, I don't care. And to me, that would be the difference between what I would call a neutral, restful feeling, where in it there is still the caring for life, the awareness of life, of our life, others' life, and indifference. Because indifference is more kind of saying, I don't care. I don't care about myself, I don't care about this, I don't care about that. 
And that not caring generally distances us from the person, from ourselves, from whatever. When the other one, I feel this neutral feeling, but more as a restful feeling, make us more, in a way, grounded in the experience. But the way I would say it, without making waves. Like a restful feeling is you don't make waves, but it doesn't mean you don't exist. You exist, but in a more peaceful way. I think that would be, in a way, the difference between uh, you have a lake, which is totally calm, but the water is still there. And then if you have a storm, then it really changes. But then it goes back to being really calm. When I would say indifferent, there would be no water there <laughs> to have any shape, because there is this kind of like generally this pushing, there is a little kind of, you know, I don't want to know. I, this does not concern me. Then there cannot be that kind of arising of compassion. Yes? Emotional sensations. They're both in the body. It's hard to, uh, it's a blur and blend. And to sort of say that that's one thing, that's another, it becomes quite hard. You see what I mean? But if I feel, I feel something, uh, if I feel something's very beautiful, I feel that in the body. It has that separate from kind of bodily sensation. Okay, I see what. You see, I think in a way, I'm sure, I mean, uh, in terms of the kind of like the scientific way of looking at it. No, no, I don't want to go there because I, uh, I have read books and it's just too complicated for me. But in simple terms, as we're trying to talk here, I think we, we feel things in different way. And we feel them through the body. It's not kind of, you know, somebody here feeling them. So we feel them through the body. So first you would have, you see the difference I would make, but this is not in terms of the experience, but it's more in terms of trying to talk about it. So I would say physical sensation is when it's kind of more, I would say nearly of a physical nature. Like if I have sciatica, you know, I feel zoom, something like this. If I have a pain in the teeth, I kind of feel something. I mean, I can also feel kind of well in the body, like you can feel energetic. Sometimes, you know, you feel energetic. Or like, I do Pilates. I do the Pilates, and then after I feel, hmm, you feel something, you know. But it's what I would call, kind of there you have physical sensation plus a little feeling of well-being too. I agree there. So in a way, you see a beautiful rose, or you see, you f smell the fresh air, and there is a feeling in the body of well-being. So physical sensation, then you have something you, you could nearly say more, not psychological, but kind of something which kind of becomes more like that. But when I'm talking, when I was talking of emotional sensation, I was trying to talk about how we experience emotion, which of course, you can have an emotion when you see a rose, but I would say generally the emotion is relatively neutral unless 
seeing the rose takes you to an amazing great memory or bad memory. And then you could have what I would call more like an emotional sensation, which generally when we feel that, it kind of like it feels different than feeling just a physical sensation in the knee. Because generally a physical sensation in the knee, we generally in a way feel it there. But generally an emotional sensation, we generally feel it most, I mean, most of the time for people it differs. But you might feel it in the chest, in the heart, in the belly. It's more diffuse. Yeah. It's more diffuse, but it's around here. Generally you don't feel it in the feet. That's what I mean. So, so once somebody told me he was feeling his emotion in his neck. So again, you can have it in different places. But what I was trying to point out is that we feel the emotion. And we don't feel it there. We feel it in the body. But generally what we do is very quickly we go into the meaning of that. Like we have this strong sensation in the body. And generally, we go into the meaning of it. It must be sadness, it must be fear, it must be this. And then, we're generally connected by association with different things, which some are appropriate and some are not appropriate. And that's why I'm, I was trying to, to, to point out that sometimes in meditation, it can be interesting to go there, to kind of go to the place where you generally feel your emotions, and since on retreat we generally don't feel much, then to feel, how does it feel there? Because then generally it's not so frightening. Because sometimes if you feel a lot, you can be kind of frightened and then quickly you go into the story, the meaning, and you amplify even more. And what I found interesting is that if one does that with a certain mindfulness, then one can start to be with the emotional life in the body in a different way. And then there is, it doesn't mean you don't have emotion of sadness, anger, or whatever. You still have them. But you start to be with them quite differently. And then there is less what I call this amplification effect, which then often make them very disturbing. And then we overwhelm, and generally often we lose it in one way or another. And in that way, we can be with them and then really see how they change, how to be with them, to address them, or just to see that they just come and go. And then we can be more creatively engaged. So that's why I was kind of trying to... But in the experience, yeah. In the experience, you cannot say this one is there and that one is not there. It's kind of like all melting into each other, definitely. And it's kind of like a... I would say a kind of a spectrum. Uh, yes, behind and then. Earlier on, Stephen mentioned uh, using mindfulness to work with uh, severe pain. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Severe bodily pain, and we've been practicing this tonality and seeing the changes, etc. Uh, but if it persists, you can't step away from it, and it is intense. Could you perhaps talk of more creative engagement methodology? Or? I mean, one of the, I mean, if one is really interested in that, I would say one of the best books to, to read is really the book of John Kabat-Zinn, 
full catastrophe living. It really kind of goes in great detail about it. Personally, what I would say is that your ability to use mindfulness to be with the pain really depends on your conditions and on your level of energy. That sometimes you can do that and just be with it. And actually just being with it makes you having a different relationship to it and sometimes you really can't. I think it just depends. It really depends. So I think we have to be careful not to see it as being kind of like a, a magic wand. That some of the time, yes, it really makes a big difference, as Stephen was describing with the lady who had lots of pain. But I think we have to see that it depends a little on the degree of also other things happening. I think what the mindfulness can do is a non-amplification. That if you don't amplify, if you don't worry about the fact that you have the pain, then the pain remains kind of more where it is. But it also depends what kind of pain it is. Because you have some pain who kind of like seems to enervate the whole physical system. And I think that can also be quite difficult if you have that kind of pain most of the time. And I think sometimes this kind of pain uh, can be helped more by not being so aware of it, but actually being aware of something else. So, for example, sometimes they say to be aware of the sun, for example, or sometimes being aware of a part of the body which has no pain. And so then the, the pain is in the background and the non-pain is in the foreground. I think there are many different uh, methods to do that. And also, of course, there is a, they talk about the physiological response and the relaxation response. So it's quite a large subject. So personally, I would say it depends. Sometimes it can help, and sometimes not much. It depends. You see, what is interesting, at the end of the Buddha's life, He's in great pain. And then he says to Ananda, the only way I can be with this pain is to go into the meditative absorption. So in a way, not to be there. Because in the meditative absorption, in a way, you're not there with your body. But because when he's in his body and mindful, he has lots of pain. And then in order not to feel that, then he goes into the meditative absorption because he's a great adept at that. And I've seen, I have seen a meditation master that I knew do that. Like when he was with me, like I was talking to him and he was in great pain. And when he was talking to me, you could see the pain. And then when he stopped, and then he would go like if he was going somewhere else, a little kind of... And then he, would, he was more peaceful, and then he would go back, and the pain was still painful. So we have to be careful to think that if I am mindful, the pain will not be painful. I think it depends. And uh, that, that absorption is absorption into, into what? Uh, this is such a long story. It's basically about... Uh, okay. I was just wondering if it could be an object of mindfulness. No, no, no. Generally, the, this is in the Buddhist tradition, you have a tradition of uh, doing intense concentration and through doing the intense concentration and not anything else, just intense concentration, 
then you go into meditative absorption. And it's supposed to have eight levels. And uh, then when you are in this uh, absorption, then there is no, uh, generally no reference point. It's kind of a very different type of meditation. But there are many discussions about this jhanas. This, it's called jhanas, and it's meditative absorption. And then some people say it's easy to access. Some people he said, you know, it takes a lifetime to access them. But if you're interested in this, there is a very good book about them by Richard Shankman, where he explained about how to get those and how different people look at them. But that's not my speciality. I, uh, I would not know a jana if he hit me. So, <laughs> final question. Janas. G- uh, I mean, it's kind of, it's either called da- Diana, but generally the word, the way you will find it in the book will be J, like John, J, H, A, N, A. You can Google it, it's even on Wikipedia. <laughs> but Richard Shankman's book is, is the best one on it, I would say, at the moment. Yes. Well, you see, personally, I would also listen to the not wanting to feel it. Sometimes it's wise not to go into it. Sometimes it's wise to go into it, and sometimes it's wise not to. I think, I think one has to be careful there. That's what when I talk of the yata butam, was a little about that. You know, that generally the idea is just be with it. But we saw in the Vitaka Santana Sutta that the Buddha did not say just be with it all the time. You know, he said, you know, you could be with it that way or with it this way or not even pay attention to it. So personally, I would say, uh, I mean, I would say to explore sometime to, to be with it a little bit, but not too long. I would go it by little touches, not like I am the going into this now. <laughs> that generally, I think the forcing is generally not a good idea. We have to also listen a little to the wisdom of the body and the mind. Which sometimes when they tell us to not go there, maybe we should not go there. I think sometimes we have to listen to that. So that's why I was saying you have to be careful with the yata bhutan. And so if you want to, to, in a way, it's kind of nearly like taming it. You know, if there seems to be a little like that, then just one more second. And then you go to the sand. Then if it's there again, just a little bit. Then you go to something else. And then slowly, just slowly, kind of being with it by little touches. That's what I would recommend if you really wanted to be with it over time.
I would go very slowly, very gently, time to time. Just how does it feel in the body? How does it feel, you know, in my shoulder? How does it feel in my belly? I would just kind of go and try to, to be more with the feeling sensation. And then just a little bit. And then I would go somewhere else. And then maybe again, try it. Okay, sometimes it seems like um, I'm just catching the wake left behind by a boat or something. It, it's disappeared, it's gone before I can just really experience it. Then let it go. <laughs> you see, sometimes I think we... we uh, I think it's important to see. Meditation is not... I would not say it's, it's not a psychological therapy. Oh, oh, this is just something that you know, came up when I was over in the little church, actually, and uh, seeing people's notes and things, and I felt, felt feel these things arise. And, you know, it seemed quite violent, almost how... It, but that's contact. You see, contact, but that's uh, very different. It's not like you're sitting in meditation oh, no, and suddenly you feel meditation. it. But it's kind of, you know, like you're seeing something. You see, basically, yeah. here you have the contact, then the contact, yeah. you know, we make it so. So then you have the choice, do I go back there and stay there well, and be with I it? Think a, I think it wouldn't come because, <laughs> um, well, I remembered it later and the feelings arose, but there's a definite sort of shutting down and feeling like turning away. It was like once I'd realized, oh, this is kind of unpleasant, it's gone. Let it go. Let it go. You see, I would... That was just one example. Yeah. You. I think I understand. Yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of like sometimes we have to be careful not to try to recreate something which just went. You know, so it gives you a little indication and that's good as an indication. And then maybe another time there might be something similar and then you might be more ready at that moment to be with it. I personally would be very much into kind of being in the present with it. But if it goes very fast, then I would generally let it go. <laughs> and then we have to stop here so that you can walk a little. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.